Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good weekend to you food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. The delicious conversation starts right here and right now and I welcome you to my kitchen. Recipes and tips for marvelous meals are shared here on this show. This hour, you'll gain ideas for how to eat well and live well, because this place is for people who love to cook or love to eat. Every week, you'll hear from celebrity chefs and cookbook authors. You'll hear about marvelous wines and cutting-edged recipes with distinguished artisans and chefs who stop by to share their knowledge. And we'll dish on everything you need to become a more confident cook. So, today, we're starting it off right, in fact, and... It is guaranteed to be delicious. Coming up, we have a full plate. Chef Rob Newton is here. We're seeking the South and talking about the regional cuisine of the South that has really sparked a movement, the absolute immersion of cultures and really distinct flavors that are shaping the cuisine of what is best known for comfort food. Also, before the end of the hour, we are arming you with cauliflower power. It is the hottest trending vegetable, and we'll tell you everything that you can do with it. But first, if you're looking for delicious inspiration, please check out chefjamie.com, where you'll find thousands of recipes at your fingertips, and become a fan and a friend. I'd love to follow your daily dish as well. Mine is posted on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. I like to kick off the show with a tutorial of sorts to make you the best cook you know. And have you ever wondered what the difference is between brown and white eggs? Well, white chickens lay white eggs and brown chickens lay brown eggs. Pretty simple, right? Not really with all of the choices in the egg section today. The genes actually do determine the shell color. And white feathered chickens with white earlobes lay white eggs. That's very good dinner party conversation, don't you think? Red or brown ones with red earlobes lay brown eggs. And then there's this Americana breed, also known as the Easter egg chicken, and it lays eggs with blue shells. There's actually little to no difference in taste, and all of the eggs are equal in nutritional value. But when it comes to price, however, that is another story. It has been mentioned that brown eggs are more expensive because they're larger than the breed that lays white eggs, and they do require more feed, so color us impressed. But this is a conversation to try to clear up that egg info, I should say. Um, All eggs have heart-healthy omega-3s, protein, minerals, a ton of vitamins. An extra-large egg contains five grams of fat and six grams of protein, in addition to the vitamins A, B, D, calcium, iron, uh, antioxidants, and more. And eggs have 75 calories each on average. If you take out the yolk, the egg white has only 16 calories of pure 
protein, no cholesterol or fat. So for a while, eggs were believed to have increased cholesterol levels and to have caused some form of coronary heart disease. But the recent studies have now proven otherwise. Eating both whites and yolks will not increase blood cholesterol levels unless you have a history of high cholesterol and heart disease. And although eggs do contain cholesterol, nutritionists have proven that consuming it in foods will not significantly impact your body's cholesterol level. So as soon as an egg is cracked into a hot pan, the egg white quickly changes, right? The translucent part of the egg whitens as the protein denatures and the yolk congeals and you get that creamy consistency. And if you eat both the yolk and the white together, you have a really good dose of protein, essential fats, minerals, and vitamins. I'm not an all egg white kind of girl, if you didn't notice. But when it comes to the most scrumptious egg preparation, here's how you cook perfect eggs every time. The perfectly cooked egg is a matter of taste, but perfecting the cooking method is the first step to the textbook egg in any style. So I love a hard-boiled egg, whether it's my grab-and-go breakfast, uh, maybe I'm making them for egg salad, but many find them infuriating to peel. More on that in a minute. I love my eggs poached, slightly runny, so that I can dunk butter-soaked toast into them as well. And as for fried, I like the edges of the white crisp and the yolk runny. Now, Hard-boiled eggs are easy enough, but they can be difficult to peel. And from adding a little baking soda to the water to starting the eggs at a rolling boil, some people prick the eggshells. There are so many tricks out there that will help you reach perfection. But I have a technique that blows all of those tips out of the water. I say for perfectly cooked hard-boiled eggs, you should steam them. It is not a new idea. Home cooks have been steaming their eggs to achieve hard-boiled or soft-boiled state, rather, for a while. Here's how it works. You pour about a cup of water into a three-quart sauce pot. You bring the water to a boil, and you carefully lower the eggs into the water. You cover it immediately, and you cook over medium for 10 minutes. They are not completely covered by water. They are essentially steaming. And then you take the eggs from the pot or the pot from the stove rather, and you shock them in cold water. That means cold water from the kitchen sink. When you have cool eggs completely, the shells will remove with ease and the eggs are cooked perfectly. That is the steaming method. And I have to say, I think it works better than anything. Now, once you try it, uh, you will be on your way to hard-boiled perfection, full steam ahead. And of course, if you would like all of these excellent recipes, I had to go there, sorry, you can always email me, jamie, J-A-M-I-E at chefjamie.com. All right, are you a perfectly poached eggs kind of person? Well, here's how I do it. I like to poach my eggs in shallow water, um, and I do just a couple of eggs at a time so that they guarantee to look good when they're done. A gentle simmer is really important. You bring it up to a boil first, um, and a splash of vinegar or acid of any sort like lemon juice helps the egg whites to set more quickly. And the fresher the egg, the more tightly the white stays together. I break the egg for poached eggs into 
into a separate ramekin or bowl. And then I swirl the water or stir it with a spoon to create a spinning motion before I add the eggs. It creates a vortex. It takes some practice, but it really works. So do try it. And for perfectly fried eggs, for me, it's all about getting the tops of the fried eggs, the yolks, to cook without burning the bottom of the yolk. I do unsalted butter in a saute pan. I crack the eggs. I add them to a hot buttered pan and I let them sizzle away. And if the whites are taking too long, I'll cover the pan with a lid. That's a chef's secret. Um, as well as sometimes you can put a little water into the pan. The water steams the top of the egg yolk to perfection and the white sets beautifully. But no matter how you cook an egg, you can relish in the beauty and simplicity of it. Maybe it's an Italian frittata. Maybe you're making a trending egg sandwich on a sweet Hawaiian roll with sriracha mayo. Oh, yes. The possibilities are endless. And if you are looking for excellent inspiration, check out chefjamie.com. The bonus recipe of the week, though, highlights the beauty of the egg. It is my favorite rustic French dessert made of fresh fruit and a beautiful sort of voluptuous batter that bakes into this golden, puffy, lovely, cakey tart. It's called a clafouti. And if you can find fresh cherries, um, but pears work well as do berries, the clafouti is based on eggs and egg yolks. The fresher, the better, of course. And it makes a really impressive dessert, but it is super simple to prepare. So my cherry clafouti is the bonus recipe this week. Just email me, jamie at chefjamie.com, J-A-M-I-E in both places, and I will gladly send it to you. And that is your tutorial for the week. You are now definitely armed with knowledge on the ever wonderful egg. All right, stay tuned because we are digging deep into the beauty that is the diversity of the South. Oh, how I love fried chicken and fried green tomatoes and cornbread and more. Well, this next chef and gentleman is bringing to life the regional distinctions and the influences that make up the changing face of Southern cuisine. Chef Rob Newton is here, and we're dishing right after the break. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Don't go away. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. We do have incredible culinary thinkers on this show, and I am so proud of that. Rob Newton is a chef and restaurateur with an uber impressive resume and a notable story. He was raised in Arkansas on pork chops, beans, and corn. He's a veteran, having served in the first Gulf War. He finished college, went on to culinary school, and worked under many of New York's top chefs at Le Cirque and under Floyd Cardoz, just to name a couple. He opened his own award-winning establishments, Searsucker, Nightingale 9, and Black Walnut in Brooklyn, a notable path, to say the least. 
In his debut cookbook, Rob brings to life the regional distinctions and the new influences that make up the changing face of Southern cuisine. And he's revealing just how deliciously diverse Southern cuisine really is. Seeking the South is a modern day Southern cookbook celebrating the regional dishes, and it is a tremendous read. Chef Rob Newton is here to dish, and I am delighted. I'm very glad to have you, Chef. Welcome. That's a fantastic intro, maybe the best ever. I really appreciate that. That's a lot of kind words. Thank you. Well, well-deserved, and thank you. I'll take the compliment, too, for best ever intro. <laughs> Definitely. Well, thank you. How is it to be back living in the South? Nashville's treating you well. Such a great city. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it is treating me well. I I enjoy it. I waited a long time to come back to the South, hmm. and um, it's particularly cool. Cool. Uh, you know, the proximity to Arkansas, where I'm from, and it's a great food city. Yeah, it is. It's a, a burgeoning food city, no doubt. Aside from your own food, dishes, uh, restaurant menu, is there a particular dish you've had of late that stands out, that you think is notable Nashville, or that proves maybe the, the cutting edge, you know, sort of innovation of uh, Southern cuisine specifically to Nashville on the rise? Well, I don't know about specifically to Nashville, but I just spent almost a month in Asia, mm. and without even having to really try that hard, I mean, it's kind of a stereo, uh, extending a stereotype that I try to veer away from in the book, but I, I couldn't help not try fried chicken and fried chicken sandwiches in every Asian city that I was in, it's not even really because I went seeking them specifically, um, but there is there, and then, you know, I know that Nashville didn't invent fried chicken, but um, it is something that is associated with the South, whether I want that to be the case or not. Sure. And it's extended its arms into Asia, and a fried chicken sandwich is something everybody, hmm. as long as you eat meat, everybody can get their head around and get behind and enjoy. So yeah. I would say that it's jump the shark or jump the pond, one of the two. <laughs> I love that throughout the book, and I'm reading page by page, by the way, because I think it's a beautiful read. You are really you. trying to, of course to help us understand Southern cuisine more deeply. You dug deep to discover the South and very much alluding to what you just mentioned in your month in Asia, the South has been shaped by people and cultures from elsewhere, right? I'd love, I'd love if you would share what those culinary contributions are. Like you allude to Middle Eastern communities that introduced sumac to the Delta, to the Mississippi Delta, right? Well, I don't know about introducing sumac. It probably may or may not have happened. I don't know if they could get that when they started settling in the Delta. But the Lebanese <clears throat> communities in the Delta are pretty well documented and have had their own influence. Sure. Um, sumac is something that's more readily available now than it probably was in the, in the 50s. Um, hmm. But they've had their influence there. And when you're sitting in you know, a little restaurant that is part diner and part uh, Lebanese snacks, and you hear, you know, teenage boys and girls sitting behind you talking about how much they love kibbe. That's <laughs> not something that we often associate with, you know, like one of the totems of Southern food. And to have kids in high school that that's something that is part of their part of their food memories. Yes, is sort of the definition of it being ingrained into that society. And that 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 happened. That happened to me and Jamie, my co-writer, um, when we were there, and that was a really cool thing to see. 
For sure. And there's so much similarity too. you speak to in the book, uh, the reinvention of grilled meats, pickled vegetables, uh, much loved in the Korean culture and similarly in the Southern culture, right? And, and how those flavors have melded, uh, talk about please the influence of your own cuisine and how you incorporate the cultural flavors, I would say, because you are considered uh, to be making elevated Southern cuisine. Sure, I'll, I'll take that compliment. Thank you. Yes. Um, the dish that you're speaking to is um, the summer pancake, which is like mm-hmm. a on a more traditionally in Korean food. Um, it would be like most usually a seafood pancake, mm-hmm. um, but they do other kinds, obviously. You know, more frequently than not, have kimchi in it. Um, and it's a pan-fried situation. It's really, really delicious. But if you take that notion of, I mean, pancakes are common in lots of cultures, but if you take grilled meats and lots of pickles and mm. spices to make things somewhat hot, I mean, you're, t- you're describing, and fermentation, you're describing a lot of what goes on in the Korean kitchen, but you're also describing a lot of what happens in the southern kitchen. And those are commonalities that, we can all get our head around, and I think we'll continue to enhance and influence Southern cuisine. I don't envision a time where, you know, every house is, you know, is making Korean food for dinner, but that'd be really <laughs> cool, and that's fine <laughs> if that's what happens, especially if you're a Korean family. Yes. But these influences are going to be felt. You know, when I was growing up, you know, there were very few taco places, uh, which we would now more traditionally call the Mexican, you know, Taqueria, there was like Taco Bell. Right. And I had no idea what a banh mi was and probably until I moved to New York City. But I think it's fair to say that, you know, a kid that's eight or nine years old now who lives in any city of a decent size can find a banh mi. And it's just going to be part of their food memories. And I think yes. that's how we will continue to evolve and change and not necessarily adapt, but just to evolve our cuisine and just be more broad. You talk about, and I quote in the book, there is no genre of American cuisine as storied as Southern. How do you reimagine a dish? You know, how do you take a traditional Southern dish and make it your own or add your twist? Can you break it down for us? I probably begin with the season, mm. whatever I'm trying to accomplish in that season. Good. Um, let's take asparagus, for example, and then I'll just go to the market and it'll be there. And I'll just see things that are around it that are in season, and then I'll think about what I want to do with that ingredient in terms of what I want to pair it with or if I want to make a salad of it on its own. Um, and then I just sort of put it through the lens of what I'm into and what I'm seeing and where I've traveled and as it pertains to the South or as it pertains to what I grew up with or as it pertains to you know what I learned 20 years ago. And more often than not, I wind up in some place that is... Hmm sort of seen through a recent arrival sort of lens, because that's what I'm into. That's the kind of, you know, I love those Im- immigrant stories of bringing your food, foodways here, and it's a way for you to feel comfortable. It's a way for you to have a little piece of home in a new place. Rob, we need to take a quick pause. We're digging deep in to beautiful Southern cuisine. Chef Rob Newton is here as we are seeking the South. Don't touch your dial. We'll be right back.
We're back and we're dishing Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Seeking the South is a modern-day Southern cookbook that celebrates regional cuisine. And the highly lauded Chef Rob Newton, author and chef, is here. What does that asparagus dish look like right now? What's on the plate? It looks like um, it's probably two months from now in the okay. asparagus season. And yes. <laughs> we're forecasting, um, for Chef. Me, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're doing menu development. <laughs> no, we're definitely doing menu development. Yeah, it probably involves an egg. And it probably involves, depending on who the guests are, what the what the goal is, um, some type mm. of pork product. So what would quickly come to mind is sort of inspired by this last trip that I was on. So I would probably lean toward a quail egg to sort of mm. tap into some sort of Vietnamese vibe. There are quail eggs and many, many things in Vietnam. Nice. Um, and then I would tap into something. I went to a store in Taipei. I was in Taiwan. And it's a store that pretty much does nothing but different flosses and not like the floss you put in your teeth. I know that you know that, but your guests might not know that in Asian culture they have this stuff called pork floss. Yes. And it's pork that's like cooked over and over and over mm. uh, until it gets completely dry. Probably visits a dehydrator. Mm. Um, and then it gets shredded into this like fluffy stuff that's so, kind of like cotton candy but not sweet. Yeah, like it's like a savory pork cloud. It's so good. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to call it. So what I, would pro- what I like to do with that in the southern context is take – um, really delicious country hams, uh, maybe like pieces from the edge, not the overcure stuff, but something from the edge that I can't really get a sexy slice out of, hmm. and dehydrate it, and then throw it in a blender and make like my own country ham floss kind of thing. Yes. So that dish right now probably looks like olive oil, um, some quail eggs, some country ham powder, mm. maybe some toasted sesame seeds, and a bunch of herbs. Because mm. going back to something you asked me a long time ago about how it's influenced me mm-hmm. is. After having a Vietnamese restaurant, spending so much time in Vietnam, um, maybe to the chagrin of cooks who have and do work for me, <laughs> I really can't <laughs> cook without herbs and lettuces and pretty much everything because that's such an integral part of Vietnamese cuisine. Yes. Um, I constantly mm. find myself reaching for that and, and, and think that something's missing when it's not there. So this dish will probably be rounded out with hearts of dip lettuce and... Mm. Mm. I'd probably reach for mint. I think mint and ham and asparagus all kind of work together. Mm. That's probably where it would wind up. Can we talk a few specific regions and their notable dishes, please? I I love how the book is broken down that way. And we'll start with the Upper South. It's where you're from. It's known for biscuits and pork chops, right? So if you would, do tell us your biscuit-style preference, please. Oh, man. I think square biscuits are the way to go. It it eliminates waste. I know Um, you do. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, I, I'm also not um, I'm not mad at like a million layer biscuit, but I don't really think that's how biscuits were traditionally made, unless I'm misinformed. Um, so I do like to do a little bit of layering, but the biscuit's not a croissant. So I do three three fold three trifolds, and that's mm-hmm. kind of enough for me. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I think makes my recipe nice and easy is to freeze the butter, and then do it on a box grater. Yes. And I think that really helps with the crumb. Mm. Um, and then I find most yogurt, excuse me, most um, buttermilk to be just kind of generic. So I add just a little bit of vinegar to the buttermilk. 
um, which just kind of brings up the ass a little bit. And yeah. it could get weird if the vinegar stays in there for a long time and it comes room temperature, but when you're whipping the recipe together, it's not going to have any negative effect. No, I noticed um, that. It makes everything sharper, yeah. Yeah, I, I, was, uh, I was thrilled by that, only because I, I'm a substitution girl, um, and because, like you, I cooked professionally, albeit you are uh, elevating all of us, but at my time in professional kitchen segued to becoming a home cook and speaking to those that love to cook and love to eat at home. So I'm always finding alternatives and substitutions. If I wanted to make biscuits tomorrow, the uh, Rob Newton way, and I didn't have any buttermilk, I would take regular whole milk and add vinegar to force the curdle essentially and create my own buttermilk in a pinch. Essentially you're, enhancing buttermilk with more acid. And I think that's brilliant. Thank you. I, I think it really works. I think it makes sense. Yeah. And kind of harkens back to, you know, buttermilk that very few people can get their hands on. Yeah, so. good, old, good old buttermilk. My, my mother tells yeah. stories. My uh, grandfather would drink buttermilk from the carton. Like that was, oh, yeah. that was his thing. thing. Yes. And before yeah. he went to bed... My mom was raised where you always had a snack before you went to bed. You never went to bed hungry. You know, God forbid your, your tummy should be hungry. I was um, absolutely uh, delighted by your cornbread recipe as well. Talk about elevating. Uh, tomato basil and uh, ricotta salada. I love ricotta salada, chef. I'd, I think it's totally underutilized. For those that don't know, it's a, a firm or hard ricotta cheese and it's salted and it uh, you can... Um, shave it and it's just it has texture and creaminess it's delicious and this is just a for the, just, twist. i just want to clarify for the southern people that are like turning off the radio <laughs> and wanting to burn my book no there they're not a traditional going to cornbread recipe in the book there is just, yeah it is it's in the back and i am a i'm a real uh very specific about cornbread um mostly as it pertains to sugar and i don't mm-hmm. think it should have any but i wanted to showcase another idea um, and just do something different with it. And I also think it's a good idea for people to have fresh tomato sauce around the house. I think it's a good idea for people to have a versatile ingredient like ricotta salada around the house. I always think it's a good idea to have fresh herbs around the house. I like agree. Basil. Mm. And I just feel like this was a good idea and something fun and a little bit different. And people that just want cornbread, they still get the same cornbread they can eat on the side and stay away from the tomato if they yeah. want to. Um, <laughs> or if not, they can treat it like focaccia and just have fun with it. You know? I, I love that you're clarifying so that nobody comes out to get you, essentially, right? Oh, we, my God. We, yeah, we, we wouldn't want to. Southern cooks are. I was going to say, we wouldn't want a Southern upheaval. Um, let's, <laughs> let's move on then from the, um, <laughs> from the Upper South to the Deep South. Um, it's fried chicken we love. And I really appreciate that you were forthright about it. It's complicated. It is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you need a lot of hours and, and you need some brining and, and planning, but it's well worth it. Yeah. It's one of those things, I think, if you go through this once and you have all the stuff around and if you're lucky enough and you ever fry turkey at Thanksgiving, I recommend investing like 60 bucks in one of those outdoor turkey fryers. And if, if you don't live in... Brooklyn or Manhattan, and you live in the suburbs or whatever, you can just leave it out in your garage and pull it out whenever you want to do it. Um, and if you do, it just it's more about time. It's not about effort so much. It's just, mm-hmm. it's just about the time. So I really believe in doing the salt water. That's the way my father made fried chicken. Mm. And pulls out the blood and just makes it eat more fully seasoned. Yes. And gets out some of that blood by the 
bone, which always freaks some people out. And then the second round is where it gets like really imbued with creaminess and tenderizes a little bit and makes it more succulent with the the buttermilk marinade part. Mm-hmm. Mm. So you can condense that into 12 hours each, but it's really easy if you just, you know, do it one morning and it's ready the next morning to move on to the next step. And it really, really, truly makes a difference. Yeah, and it's it's worth it. Just for the record, I, I would oh, yeah. ki- I would kill to sit down to fried chicken with you one day. One day. Oh, one day. Um, one day. And then just for the record, I cannot wait to make frogmore salad from the low country. Yeah. I, I didn't know well, about I thought, it. Uh, there's plenty of books out there that have that, that you know. That, the recipe for that classic dish. And I just wanted to like mess with it a little bit like I did the cornbread. I cut you off there. I'm sorry. No, it, it's a twist on a seafood boil. I didn't know about it. I mean, and I, and I, oh. I trained culinary in the, in the parts of the South. I mean, call it in Louisiana. But I will tell you, it was new to me. And, and I'm excited. Geographically, it's not that different from like a lobster boil. Exactly. That you right. have up in, you know, up in the far Northeast, which isn't really part of my book, obviously. And then crab boils, which you'd have on, you know, Maryland and on the eastern seashore there and then as you move your way down they all have different little touches you know hmm. north carolina has their own vibe and this is one that i honed in on that's um in the low country and not everybody can like you know have a big boil outside so i thought it would be pretty easy um one pot just type thing to just turn it into a salad because in the summertime when these ingredients are in season and you want to do something like this who wouldn't want to have all the work done for them on a big platter right in the middle of the table and it's that oh. makes sense to me. Bring it on. It is a, a must read for 2020. Don't miss it. It is called Seeking the South. And it is a very unique, beautiful perspective on how much more depth there is to Southern cuisine than meets the eye. Crisscrossing the South, uh, Chef Rob Newton shares more than 125 recipes, the old and the familiar, uh, and those that we cherish to the cutting edge current. And new elevations of cornbread. Yes, ricotta salada. It is a dynamic book, a beautiful history lesson, and a treasure of recipes. And it will bring an evolution of flavors to your table. So check it out. It's called Seeking the South, available on Amazon and fine bookstores everywhere. You can follow Rob at Rob D. Newton. And I hope you'll come back, Chef. Um, Or if anything... I'm going to head my way to you and hope to have an opportunity to sit down at the table. Oh, I can't wait. I look look forward forward to it as well. Thank you, Chef, for sharing your passion so much. Lots more fabulous food right after this. Chef Jamie Gwen, don't go away. Satiating your appetite every weekend, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Cauliflower is a chameleon and a pretty super, super food. Certainly one of the food world's most trending topics of late. And Lindsey Grimes Friedman is a cauliflower magician. A former attorney turned full-time blogger, Lindsey was motivated to learn how to cook in a more healthful way when her husband was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. She's sharing insight and inspiration from her cookbook just released entitled Cauliflower Power, harnessing the power of this anti-inflammatory veggie and just wait until you hear how delicious cauliflower can be. 
be. I'm so glad to have you here, Lindsay. Welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me. (laughs) Yes, of course. Congratulations. The book shows so much effort that went into it. Um, and you do definitely prove that it's the world's most versatile vegetable. I, I would venture to say you're in love with cauliflower. Love it. I, it's like a blank canvas. You yes. can really do anything with it. Yeah, it's very true. Um, everything you make in the book is gluten-free. And yes. I think it's amazing that you put cauliflower in everything. Talk the health benefits first, because it really is a powerhouse. For sure. It's, it's a great vegetable if you're just trying to add more nutrients into your life. It's lower carb, it's low calorie, um, tons of fiber, and it's, yeah, it's just really great for sneaking veggies into your meal. Yeah. Do your boys notice? Sometimes. Sometimes. (laughs) Sometimes. I I like using them as a, as a tester. They're really great taste testers. Yes. Um, But yeah, they love the smoothies. They love the coffee cakes and things where it's not so obvious. I think it's Absolutely fantastic. So uh, let's talk about harnessing the power of cauliflower because you do sneak it in, but you're blatant about it in in other ways. I happen to be a cauliflower lover and the varietals, the the beautiful colors of purple and yellow and the greens and all the brassica today has really, I think, elevated is the right word above just, you know, the traditional head of cauliflower that your mom and my mom used to buy. So the possibilities are endless, but you use the cauliflower in incredible ways. So if we can go through each of the different preparations, um, there are five key ways you say in the book to prepare cauliflower, starting with the whole head. Yeah. So the whole head is, it's pretty simple. You just have to kind of peel back the leaves. Right. And then cut off the trunk if there is kind of a stem to the, to the head. And then I found it best if you steam it. Mm. And then you can pop it into your oven and just roast it up to get the nice crispy edges um, of the florets on the outside. Yeah, there's something beautiful about the caramelization and the textural dynamic of it. I, I love roasted cauliflower, and I'll do it in a uh, whole head or even florets. Uh, like you, I put it on the grill. Uh, it, it's just, I, I think, a, a fantastic sort of di- dichotomy of texture and flavor. And if you break the whole head down, you also prepare it in a steak, which is the hot new trend. Yeah, it's so cool to see <laughs> it kind of just, it cuts through, and you can see the beautiful branches and florets. Um, of the steak Mm -hmm. and so what I do is you just cut straight down from the top of the head and make a plane kind of of a steak Um, and yeah you usually get two to four steaks out of each head and you can grill them up Um, that's probably my favorite way to do it because you get that delicious chard on Mm. the on the outer florets and it's so good really flavorful just simple olive oil salt and pepper and then elevate from there for sure yeah add some fun toppings some sauces and yeah have fun with it tell us what you do with florets you can break a whole head of cauliflower down or for convenience sake let's say you bought a bag of cauliflower florets yeah and that's what's so great is nowadays at the supermarket you can buy it either you know pre-floretted they also have um rice bags if you're in a pinch and just want to save some time. Right. So, yeah, you can buy buy it in a bag, pre, um, buy it in a bag with florets, or you can cut it just into florets by yourself. And, yeah, this has so many possibilities. You can roast it. You can also grill them. 
um, or saltaeum is super fun. So lots of possibilities with the florette. I just made cauliflower fried rice. So good. Oh my God. So good. And I have to tell you, I, I ate it out of the pan because I've been known to do that, preferably <laughs> standing up, but zero guilt. And I thought, okay, yeah. I, I'm, I'm just going to finish it. Like, I mean, it was just so yummy. And it's so versatile. You can really customize whatever flavors you like. If you want to do um, kind of like a stir fry or I have five different um, options in the book for cauliflower rice. Yes. But yeah, you can really just take on whatever flavors you want. Lindsey Grimes Friedman does everything with cauliflower from uh, (laughs) imparting it into her granola. I know I can't wait to make it too. Uh, Sneaking it into her morning smoothie, breading just about everything, a vegan queso to the cauliflower pizza crust we've all fallen in love with, and a whole roasted cauliflower with sun-dried tomato and sesame that looks just absolutely scrumptious, transforming the versatile veggie that is cauliflower into magical things. The recipes in Cauliflower Power are healthful and easily adaptable, and you must check it out. Lindsay Grimes Friedman's first cookbook release entitled Cauliflower Power is getting rave reviews on Amazon, available in fine bookstores everywhere, so that you never have to skimp on flavor or satisfaction. You can Follow her on social at The Toasted Pine Nut. You are a cauliflower magician, Lindsay. Congratulations. The book is beautiful, and I'm very proud to share it. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of informative, entertaining, and delicious conversation. At least I hope you thought so. Every week, it's my goal to feed your soul. And so I hope you will stay tuned, and I thank you for listening. I'll leave you with my last bite for the hour, my last ounce or tidbit of gastronomic inspiration, having chicken for dinner tonight. Did you know that chicken is the most requested protein recipe on the internet? And everyone, every great cook should have chicken recipes at their disposal. Well, this is the easiest and most delicious marinade for chicken, breasts, thighs, wings, and kebabs ever. Seriously, it's the best. I call it my best ever chicken marinade, and it's sort of a cross between a brine and a marinade. It's a twofer. Uh, It does double duty, and it has soy sauce, honey, water, and garlic cloves. That's it. And chicken, of course. So I will share the measurements, the recipe itself, and more inspiration on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. So please check it out. My best ever chicken marinade posting today. And I'll meet you here next weekend when there is guaranteed to be lots more fabulous food in your radio. Once again, I thank you for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off, and I hope you continue to eat well.